Warmly welcome to listen to WDBE Talks, the podcast for the world of digital built environment. We invite you on a physical and virtual journey from Tallinn to Helsinki in September 2023. Hello and welcome to this episode of WDBE Talks. My name is Arni Heiskanen and my guest is Michel Joereb, Director of Innovation at BDB Quadrangle, the North American studio of Global Architecture, Design and Engineering Practice, BDP. Michel will be a keynote speaker at WDBE in September. Our topic today is how to make the AEC sector meet its environmental goals and requirements. Michel, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Arnie. Thank you for the invite. We had a little chat last week and you're in Toronto and during your Uh, our chat, you mentioned the smoke from the forest fires there. And now the residues from that smoke have now reached Finland uh, and provided us with beautiful orange uh, sunsets. (laughs) 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 Uh, And this uh, phenomenon ties into the topic of WDBE, which is investing in climate through tech. And uh, I hope the smoke has now disappeared. Or has it? It has, yes. The uh, air quality has much improved. We got some rain, and um, yeah, for a little while there, the the in, the outdoor air quality was uh, was not very good. I actually had to put on a mask to ride my bike to the studio, which uh, was reminiscent it was of the COVID days. So it was odd to be out in a mask outside, and this time it was because of the smoke. That's uh, a reminder, as I said, <laughs> of of uh, uh, of how the climate is changing i think yeah yeah but uh, first of all can you tell us about your background your current work and uh, what made you passionate about building sustainably yeah well i am an architect for around 25 years i've worked on some great projects uh, many of them local here i've worked on um, the first mass timber office building to be built uh, in in Ontario in a century. I've done some great adaptive reuse projects where we've done buildings on top of buildings, buildings attached to other buildings, um, all part of the good news story about embodied carbon where we're preserving our existing building stock. Um, what made me passionate? So, that, so that's the architectural side of what I do. In the past few years, my role has changed. You introduced me as the director of innovation. So that is definitely, uh, that is my focus at the moment. So I work rather than vertically on, on specific projects, I work more across the practice, um, trying to build a culture of innovation within our practice, uh, trying to see what we're doing and trying to extract the work, the amazing work that we're doing across the practice and pull that to the surface so we can sort of shine a spotlight on that and share that knowledge more widely. Um, In the Toronto studio in particular, sort of in North America, I also have a focus on sustainability, which sits underneath innovation. So that is part of my role as a sustainability strategist. So with that, I am trying to sort of upskill the people that are here. We have a green team that sort of connects into each of the projects, really trying to um, grow our knowledge and improve our practice. Um, We, as a firm, did our science-based targets recently where we looked at, we did an audit of our scope one, two, and three emissions. And now we are working to 
take those numbers down. We have those numbers validated with the science-based targets, which is exciting. So we have to make a 46.2% reduction in those uh, in the next uh, seven years. Um, you asked me a little bit about what uh, attracted me to sustainability or what, what brought me there. Um, when I look back growing up, I grew up on a ravine system, so I don't know how much you know about the, the geography of Toronto, but there's all kinds of great ravine systems that travel through, and we've been very good about preserving those green spaces. I'd say a lot of my... My happiest times are spent out in nature. I, I'm an avid cyclist and I'm so excited to be coming to Finland for that reason because I hear the cycling is great. Um, so I think that's a part of it. I did my architectural thesis in school um, about nature, nature and the body, about what it was to, to make a building in space. Because if you think about it, I was looking around at the architecture that was being built and thinking they were just being placed as objects as objects to be looked at, as opposed to objects to experience much of the time. Um, and even sort of the way architecture was taught at the time, I think it's shifting now the way that we think about it. Um, but my thesis was all about letting the land tell us what should be there. So looking at the microclimactic conditions and how the building or any kind of built form would change that place and what you might put there to be able to make the place better than you found it. And so I guess this is what we now call sort of regenerative design. Um, but that's those were the things that really drove me at the time. I didn't find a lot of practices that were working on that, but I have found a way to to make it a part of my work now, which is which is great. Uh, very exciting. So you look around at what's getting built and I thought, most of what we're being, building is this. How can I affect change? And to me, that's that's what drives me every day. Can I, you know, how can I affect the change that I want to see? And I think as architects, we really are given this great privilege of being able to design the built environment. And it's, it's such an amazing role. And so I, I take that seriously. Um, yes, as your as as your role in innovation, I guess nowadays. Every innovation has uh, an, an environmental component in it. Yeah, I would say that that's definitely true. That's part of why I see sustainability as sitting within it. Often you see people who have this role and they're the director of sustainability and innovation. It's often a combination because I think it is the great challenge that we really need to solve. And in order to do that, we do need innovative ways of thinking about things. Um, I think there are parts of sustainability that we just have to get used to doing as um, almost the operational side of sustainability, uh, where we have to get used to measuring what we do. We have to get used to learning from what we do and bringing the learning forward. But I think in terms of innovation, it's really about making change in an industry that's already very established, um, that has its way of doing things. And um, innovation can be seen as quite high risk in, in the construction industry. We've done things the same way for a very long time. And so starting to think about how you make those changes, um, making better building envelopes, really thinking about the building forms that we're creating and, and working to adapt within these systems. Yes, you said that uh, the industry is very established. <laughs> so yeah. in your opinion, what are the mo most significant barriers or challenges that the construction sector has in transitioning to more sustainable practices? 
I think part of it is really, I'm not sure exactly how it's organized within in Finland, but I know in North America, you get sort of the professionals who are in charge of the design and they go forward and they take the project to a certain place and then it gets handed to the contractor and the contractor takes it from there and usually they're professionals. And then there's a whole lot of trades that, that fall out of that and those trades, some of them are more professional than others. Some of them have different uh, skill sets. Um, and often the vision isn't carried through from one end of it to the other. And it's not like a factory where everything's built under one roof. Every time you build a building, it's bespoke, right? So you're and you're building it on a new place. So it's almost like you're build, bringing the factory to the site. Um, I see that one of my fellow panelists is going to be talking about um, building creating buildings within a factory. And I think that's a lot of the nut that people have been trying to crack for some time within the construction industry. So we are seeing more 2D modular and 3D modular, whether they're full forms and you're stacking them on top of each other, or whether it's just some kind of panelization system. I think as those things start to become, as people start to become more comfortable with them, um, you're going to see more of an uptake. But again, there's so much money involved in the construction of a building. And there's already so much risk in building a building. It's about sort of, you know, keeping people safe from the environment, keeping the elements out or, or sort of managing the elements with the building. And so we're seeing more interest in it. We're seeing more factories pop up that are doing various things, which has been interesting. And that experience that I had doing that mass timber building here in Toronto, those were uh, nail laminated timber planks. So those were 2D modular floor panels that were brought in and it was beautiful. They were brought in on a truck. They were hoisted into place. It took very few people on the site to make that happen. It was very quiet and it was very clean. One of the cleanest construction sites I've ever been on. It was really quite something compared to building with concrete. Um, so I think, and, and what I saw through that is we were the first, everyone was talking about mass timber here. Everyone was talking about wanting to do it. We got a client who committed to it. They wanted to be the first. They wanted to try it. They knew that there was risk attached to it, but they really believed in the design. And as a result of that, we were able to do it. And we ended up using the project as a teaching tool. So we built a mock-up of the project in the Carpenters Union where you have students that are going to school and they're coming in and they're seeing it. We brought all the trades in. So the curtain wall suppliers, we brought in the sprinkler guys came and they put in their pieces and each of the trades came in and attached their piece to this one sort of bay that we built. And then there were the students that happened to be there and others that did tours. And we, we continue to do tours of the space. And now that people have seen it, they can imagine it. So I think one of the, the, biggest hurdles is not understanding all the risks and the tie-ins. Um, but then one of the opportunities is once one person does it, there's this opportunity for more people to say, okay, now I understand it. Now I understand the risks you went through. And we've done so many speaker sessions about this building because everyone wants to hear about it. They want to hear what we've learned and we pass along that learning and then people can take that and translate that into their projects. So we try to be quite open about what we learned. I think that's also a really, really important part of, of innovation and change is this, this idea of open source information. Your fire or smoke experience forced you to to again wear a mask and previously we had covid and and covid changed how we live and how we work and how we interact with people um 
Is there something in that experience that we can learn from in terms of changing the industry? I think one of the silver linings maybe of COVID was we had this shared experience. We had this shared experience of sheltering in place, of not having the social connections, of needing this connection to nature, finding that once we could go outside, we were all seeking out nature. It was all about getting to green spaces and having access to those green spaces. And what we've realized, I think, at least, you know, around where I live is that cars take up a lot of space. And so we had all these big roads with all this space and these little tiny sidewalks for peace, for, for people. And because people couldn't sit in restaurants, what they did is they took over a lane of traffic and they started to put tables outside. They started to take over lanes of traffic and and put in new bike lanes that they'd been promising for years and years. Suddenly, the political will was there to make these amazing things happen. And we got to experience what happens when you take the red tape and the bureaucracy out of the way and you make things happen. And it made they made it happen because there was a need. And they made it happen very quickly, which made people be able to imagine the dream of what we'd all been talking about. Imagine if we were all connected. Imagine if there was more space for people. We would talk about those things. But somehow living it was what COVID gave us the ability to do. And so in terms of what the learning is, I think there's something really important about realizing you can do things very, very quickly and inexpensively to help people adopt the dream and and adopt the political will to make the change. And I think that was something where we saw things just get cleared up and make it happen. I mean, part of the role of an architect is to imagine it so that people can get there. And then I think part of the role of government is removing the barriers to allow us to make these things to happen and to allow us to inspire people by living it. I just learned today that there are over four times as many parking spots in uh, in the USA as there are cars. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. And I mean, it's an interesting thing about cars, actually. In Paris, I think, I can't remember the exact uh, percentage, but they have committed to this idea of the 15-minute city. And one of the things that's part of that is giving over half the parking spaces to green space. So they're actually going to start to take that space back. So it's it's interesting because I feel like they've learned from COVID and now they're actually implementing those things. I think I think it's important not to forget what we learned there and not to and not to forget that we're still in this recovery period where we should be taking those lessons learned and translating them directly into our work right now because we have this opportunity. We're not quite back to stabilized yet, right? We're still sort of living out um, a reestablishing of where we belong, right? We all had this time period of being locked down and looking at our values and reassessing our the balance of work and family life and inside outside space. And as people are reevaluating what they care about, we have this opportunity within this recovery period to change what that endpoint is going to be. And we sort of had to park climate change during COVID, but now it's time to put it back to the top of the agenda and use this time to get us to where we need to be. In AEC, we are now starting to understand how to manage CO2 emissions and embodied carbon in buildings. Um, it's becoming a necessity to understand these things. But what other aspects of sustainability 
besides these, let's say, technical issues or technical numbers, should we also start considering? You know, I talked a little bit about people's values changing. I think what's important people and what brings people back to and to the office space, for instance, has changed. People come in for social connection, for collaboration, for things other than just putting their heads down and working. So I think that's a part of the sort of reorganization that's happening. I think the one of the values that changes people started to think about their own personal wellness and and their social the social side of things those things so if you look at some of the political issues that have taken taken hold in a in a brand new way these ideas of inclusion um, accessibility these are pieces that they've been slowly growing but I feel like COVID pushed those things to the top of the agenda. So I look even in our own studio, which we actually built during COVID, we uh, were designing it during COVID and we did all kinds of engagement work with the people in our studio to understand why they would want to come back, what was going to bring them here and how we could, how we could keep them building the amazing culture that we've always had here. And part of it was wellness. So we did do a well certification for our studio. So we're almost finished. We're pre-certified for well platinum. And as part of that, we put in these air quality sensors. And so those are now measuring, you know, various components, particulate matter and all of these things. And that was very interesting last week with the smoke, um, measuring these things within the building. And so part of that was taking it and putting it into the hands of our people so that they could see that we were taking it seriously. And we put in policies that go with that um, and all kinds of things that support it. So there's the policy side and then there's the sort of the measurement side. And so definitely keeping, so there's the technical, but there is always the people. It's the people first in architecture. It's the people in all of this technology. The technologies that work the best are the ones that eliminate friction for people, that allow people to make the right choices because it's actually easier to make the right choices. And I'd say the other thing to really be considering is this idea of of resilience. Um, So our ability to weather a storm, right? Future climate events. Um, Really thinking about the climate of the future, not just for today. So I, I, again, I'm not sure exactly how it is in Finland, but here our building codes are designed using historical weather data. And really we need to be considering future climate data. And there's nothing that mandates us to do that. So whose responsibility is that? Because we do need to be thinking about it. It's changing. It's going to be a lot warmer here. There's going to be a lot more precipitation. And it's sort of a question that I have is where where the responsibility for these things lies and really thinking again, reimagining what is that future that we're imagining. And and the tricky thing is there's there's a lot of unknown. So definitely something to be thinking about. And there's a lot of smart people out there thinking about it. So really just sort of coordinating ourselves again with this and sharing this data widely so that we're moving along a trajectory that we believe in that's going to take us to the right place. In your role and at your company, you certainly uh, deal with a lot of technology and digital technologies. And we are now getting an ex- an exponentially increasing amount of uh, data from our processes and, and the built environment. What can that data enable, enable us to do uh, that was not perhaps possible earlier? Yeah, another good question. I mean, data, data, data. I think that's what we're all talking about. You know, you think about BIM modeling. 
And I think when we first sort of adopted BIM, you know, a decade ago, it was really all about the model. There was information in it, but I don't think we were always using interrogating the information as we could. And I feel like we're we're entering the stage of of being able to interrogate that detail that that data now. We now have enough of it. Um, so things like material quantities and taking that the material quantities and being able to sort of imagine them on a dashboard, like extract that and visualize the data so that at your as you're designing real time, you can understand the embodied impact carbon impacts of your design decisions of making a very large transfer structure or of doing shear walls compared to columns. Um, so part of it is that you can measure performance as you're going along. And not just that, but you can measure the performance all the way through a body's uh, a building's life cycle from cradle to cradle. And that, to me, is something that's really quite phenomenal. Because um, you can, and then as well, you can model and test the solutions before you actually build them. So you can do simulations, understand how something's going to perform, then you can implement it, use sensors to measure how it's performing, and then you can tweak its performance as it's going along. And to me, that's something that's really quite incredible, being able to optimize the performance of the building. And by optimizing the performance of the building, you're optimizing the performance of the people within it. So I talked a little bit about indoor air quality. And there are all, there's all kinds of research that talks about good indoor air quality leading to higher performance of students on tests, of people in the workplace, of people building in in factories. And so to me, that's that's the biggest investment a company makes is really in its people paying salaries. And if you could improve the performance of the people that are in that building, well, that's again, that's a that would be huge. And you know, I, I was listening to somebody speak recently and she was a she was a triathlete. And she is also a researcher and she was doing her PhD on indoor air quality and she studied all these different uh, event spaces and discovered that people were hitting their highest performance in very specific athletic venues. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting. And she linked it back to indoor air quality. And I thought, wow. So imagine as an athlete, you could you could insist upon, well, I will only perform, you know, this space, this is where I want to compete because this is where I'm going to hit my gold medal best, you know, really interesting. Oftentimes, I think at least earlier, uh, designers very much are especially architects, based their decisions on intuition, so to speak, and experience. Yes. And now we can actually see what's, what the world is actually like, what, what's happening in, in reality. And hopefully that will <laughs> allow us to, to improve our designs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Imagine that I'm, uh, um, because you have been also um, involved in residential development, uh, if I were an urban residential development project developer, um, how should I best organize the project so that I could achieve the new and upcoming environmental goals and requirements? Yeah, we do a lot of residential development. I mean, if you look at the city of Toronto, we've got more cranes in the air in the city of Toronto than there are in all of North America combined, which is really something. And it's been this way for, for several years in a row. Um, so we have a lot of experience with residential development. 
And we, we did a little research project recently called Low Carbon Now, where we looked at, and this was just, a, it was an interested group of consultants, mechanical engineers, sustainability consultants, uh, structural engineers, building envelope. And we got together and said, how are we going to make this happen faster? You know, there's there's the policies and those sorts of things, but we need to get there now. We need to, like, the buildings we should be building now should be zero carbon, even if the regulation doesn't push us there. And I think the thing that we came up with was that, hands down, the way that we do things here, because of our sort of municipal approvals process, is that things tend to happen in short sprints. So you work on a project and then it stops for a while and then you work on a project and stops for a while. And what that means is the developers invested a whole lot of money in purchasing this land and hiring the lawyers to move these things forward. So you end up with this sort of broken system. And because the investment has happened very early on for there, they want to keep the costs down. And so there's a hesitation to bring on a full consultant team early. And so what ends up happening is the architect makes decisions early or the soils engineer and, you know, eventually structural comes on, eventually mechanical. And by the time they get there, so many decisions have already happened in that front end, that building form, which impacts the mechanical engineer, those decisions have been made without them. So I'd say the one thing that they could do hands down is bring in an integrated consulting team early. So you know, integrated project delivery. There's a little bit more risk. It's a bit newer in the North American um, market. But bringing those teams in and putting that risk on the table early, we're all trying something new. That's part of it. We're all trying something new. And I think one way or the other, bringing that team early, even if they're doing sort of small scopes of work that inform what that form is and not being fully brought on until later. But I think on every single project, we should be charting that pathway to get to net zero, regardless of whether you do it all in this first project. Because if you chart the pathway, you're making sure that whatever other infrastructure decisions that you're making, building envelope that your de decisions that you're making are in line with your plan for the building of tomorrow. So good decisions early will save all kinds of time and money and will put you on a much better pathway to achieving those environmental goals that you're after. And what we're finding is these higher performance sustainability agendas, you do need that integrated thinking to keep the cost down. Because if you take that sort of additive approach, okay, well, now I'll add solar panels. Well, you have to get the energy usage down. It's back to the basics that we've been talking about for years and years that we know how to do. But it's bringing those numbers down so that then you can afford to put on the renewable energy. So... Um if there is one thing that you would change in the uh, way we uh, build and what we build, what, what would that be? <laughs> I think there's two parts. There's like in what we build and the way we build. So when I think about what we build, I think I think we take down existing buildings too easily without enough thought. I think we should really be interrogating when somebody makes an application to demolish an existing building, we really need to look at it and think about what it is to repurpose 
that building and whether it's possible and what that function might be. I mentioned I've done a couple of really interesting buildings where we've done buildings on top of buildings or, you know, we found that an existing building had capacity for four more floors. So we added those four more floors. And if you think about it, the embodied carbon is really so much of it is sitting in the structure. In a residential building, it's like 55 to 70 percent of the embodied carbon sits in the structure. So if you can retain that and then take that building and adapt it for some other purpose, that can be, um, it's really the best thing that you can do. And when I think about how, how we should change what we build, I've been thinking a lot about materials lately. So I've been thinking a lot about material tracking. So I mentioned sort of BIM and being able to put certain information into your model. And then you think about that tracking, tracking of that material for cradle to cradle. Imagine if you had information within your model that told you exactly what the cladding was, that attached all the information about the maintenance of that, and that information could pass along. You're passing on this digital information, handing it over in a very real and intentional, purposeful way so that the person that's operating that building can then take that to the next level. If every material that was in here was tagged so I could scan the QR code, know exactly where it came from, so that at the end, I might be repurposing the building for something, but then I could put these pieces that are around me up for sale because I know exactly what I have. I know how old they are. I know how to look after them. And you come to me to buy it. And you're able to do that because I have this digital tracking method for this material. And then it doesn't have to go to landfill. It can go to be repurposed elsewhere. And so this is really creating that circular economy thinking and using digital means to get us there. Well, uh... Everything that we have discussed, I think that it, it requires that we learn something new. And there are so many people already working in the industry. But w how can we learn these new, uh, upgrade our skill sets and learn learn what we have to learn? What is the best way or, or what would you suggest? I think there's a, a couple of things and some of them are, you know, kind of, personal, which is about sort of keeping an open mind and surrounding yourself by people who um, who are curious and open-minded so that you're always learning and always thinking about what the best way to do things is. So always interrogating business as usual, asking lots of questions um, and asking that of the people around you. Um, I'm finding micro-learning really interesting. So doing these 10-minute online things rather than deciding I need a whole day of training, maybe I can learn things in little 10-minute sections and then take that and apply it immediately. Um, I think there's just so much information being produced, like way, way more quickly than we can comprehend or absorb. So I think we need to get comfortable with those technologies that help us to interpret this information. So, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about AI, and I suspect at the conference we're going to hear lots of great stuff about AI. I'm really looking forward to that, actually, having good conversations about it. Um, but I think of them as sort of assistive technologies. I used AI recently to help me write, to help me write something. And I said, this is what I want to think about. These are the questions I, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. And it gave me these responses and I was able to use those responses. I used almost none of the words that it gave me, but it gave me a way of organizing my thoughts very quickly so that I didn't have to write the outline. It sort of wrote the outline for me 
and it set me on the right path. So it definitely shrunk my time by a couple of hours by using it. But I think starting to think of these assistive devices and these technologies and how they can help us speed up our processes. Yes, I'm I'm sure that AI will in many ways change the way we work and hopefully give us more, let's say, almost superpowers <laughs> yeah. in the in the future. Um, finally, could you tell us a bit about what you're planning to cover in your for your talk for uh, WDBE? Yeah, so I've given this a lot of thought. I've gone there's there's so many directions this could go in. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So thinking about this, um, I think I'll focus on our internal innovation hub. So we've got this BDP innovation hub that we launched about nine months ago, um, which is a crowdsourcing tool for for ideation. Um, and we're using this to kind of tap into the smart people that we work with, um, really crowdsourcing solutions. So we put out business challenges to our 1,300 people, 1,300 or so people, and we ask them the questions. We say these are the these are the business challenges that we are faced with and that we're trying to solve. How would you go about doing it? And then we get these responses back. And so far we've focused, we did one on automation, we've done another one on on scaling up our sustainability efforts. And so it's been very, very interesting. So I'm going to share a little bit about that. I'll probably touch on some of the research that work that we've been doing. So we did one recently where we were using existing data sets to understand places that we were building in. So again, it's just things that are changing our workflow. And if, as part of that, we've actually created a future workflows team that's rethinking, you know, the problem that we've given them is what if you didn't have to do it this way? What if you didn't have to follow the traditional trajectory of an architectural project? Where would you introduce AI? What would you do with it? What would you do with gen generative design? How would you use augmented reality to look at building without drawings? Um, so, and we've found some great people. We've done some sort of, again, micro research projects to start to make suggestions of how we could do it. And now we're taking that to the next level and seeing how we can implement that into our project delivery teams, our technology delivery. And then we put the next sort of problem in front of them to take a look at. So these are people that are super passionate about technology that are already thinking this way. And I think you need those sort of mavens within the practice to start to get people really excited about making technology about a part of what they're doing. Because I think in architecture, I think the engineers are a bit different. I think they're already thinking about ways for technology to help us do what we do. I think as architects, we're thinking about make, maybe the technology in the building itself, but not necessarily as the enabling technologies for us as designers. I think we're a bit more hesitant with it, I would say, as a as a as as professionals. So this has been really interesting, and we're sort of putting out tech talks. So I'm going to share a little bit about uh, where we're going with that. So that's that's where I'm going with it. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to <laughs> to hearing that, and and of course meeting you in person, hopefully here in Helsinki or Tallinn, uh, where the WDBE will take place in September. Uh, how can our listeners best connect with you? 
Um, I'd say the best place is to find me on LinkedIn. So you can just uh, put my name in there and and my name will come up. Or you can always check us out on the bdp.com or bdpquadrangle.com. Well, Michelle, this has been a fantastic interview. And uh, as I said, let's meet in September. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, Arnie. Thank you again. Thanks for listening. Join us at wdbe.org. Boom, boom, boom.